guest today is Dan Liner Voss from the sociology department of the University of Southern California. Dan has been the guest who it has been, I think it's safe to say, the most difficult to schedule, not his fault. I, I think it's mostly mine, my incapacity of figuring out time differences. He is in Los Angeles and Mark and I are on the East Coast. But we have loved his book, Sinews of the Nation, so much that we haven't been willing to let go of him. I, I suspect that he has grown tired of our repeated messages, uh, changing the schedule time for the podcast, but he's so gracious and has been willing to tolerate us. So I want to both say welcome to Dan. He is a dear friend of some of our friends at the University of Southern California Law School, which is how we got to know about his book first. But I want to not only welcome him, but give him a chance to tell us how he got interested in this really obscure question of diaspora bonds. So, uh, Dan, welcome. And uh, could you give us a little bit of background on how in the world you picked this truly unusual, obscure, intersectional, bizarre area <laughs> sure i'll be i'll be happy to and thank you for having me it's a, like it was a great meeting you and and getting to know you through these constant attempts to schedule the meeting for me i'm i'm a sociologist and kind of in some ways i think about myself as primarily a sociologist of nationalism uh, and specifically of uh, long distance nationalism or diaspora nationalism uh, what is interesting to me in this context is to try to understand how diaspora groups and homeland national movements uh, cooperate, given that there's deep kind of cultural, political, economic differences typically between diaspora groups and homeland communities. So how do they, in some instances, manage to work together? Uh, and the book that you read is, is part of a broader research program. Essentially, what I had in mind is to study different places or different uh, spheres of life where uh, uh, members of diaspora communities engage uh, with the homeland national movement. So you can imagine instances of members of diaspora communities that visit the homeland in order to kind of get this intimate uh, intimate acquaintance uh, with the homeland. This will be kind of physical, uh, traveling across the ocean. In some other cases, you can think about uh, instances of political advocacy, where diaspora groups are advocating their, their kind of host governments on behalf of a faraway homeland as another type of more political relationship. And once you scratch the surface of this relationship and focus on them, you realize that fundraising uh, is very oftentimes one of the main vehicles of this relationship. Uh, so this type of relationship are economic. They're about transfers of resources. 
but they also kind of in some ways connect uh, the separate communities. Uh, and that's how I got to study the Israel bond. Like I started by looking on philanthropic networks that funnel resources from American Jews to Israel uh, or to Palestine at the beginning of my research. Um, and then pretty soon after, when I was just reading general literature about this philanthropic relationship, I came across this really bizarre uh, case, as you, like obscure uh, instance that actually in, in this context plays a very important role, which is these bonds that are half a gift, half an investment. What, they what the heck are they? And I figured, oh, that will be a really interesting case to study. Uh, and now kind of 15 years later, I'm still obsessed with it. One of the things I know that struck us as lawyers and lawyers who think about contracts, uh, so one of the things that struck us as interesting is this kind of intersection between gift and exchange transaction that these bonds represent. And I, I kind of want to ask you to elaborate on the gift components of this a bit. And so when we say that there is um that it we should think of of the these bonds as in part gifts, what exactly do you mean? So um ju just to elaborate a little bit on on what might otherwise not make much sense as a question. You know, people enter into transactions all the time for reasons that might be tinged by altruism or ideology or so forth. And, and we often, at least as lawyers, kind of overlook those motivations. So what is it that makes gift central to these transactions from the investor's perspective? So I have two cases in my book, the, the Jewish and the Irish, but they're actually uh, similar in that regard. We are talking about uh, bonds that on the surface, they look exactly like uh, every other bond, or not exactly like every other bond, but let's say if you look from enough distance without uh, looking on uh, into the details of these instruments, they look like regular bonds, they pay interest, uh, they have a maturity date, uh, so in that regards, they're just a, an investment like any other. On the other hand, and, and you don't really need to be close to the nitty gritty details, like uh, legal details of this transaction, they're clearly offered by entities that are extraordinarily shaky. Like uh, in the Irish case, you have a government that the declares itself to be a government but has no territory under its control whatsoever. They have no tax basis to uh, kind of get revenues to return it one day in the future. And it's not clear if they will even survive for that day in the future when the bond matures. For the Israeli bond, it, it was floated when the state was already established, but economically it was far from. It was actually on the brink of bankruptcy almost every week. The economy was in tatters. And also it's kind of, there was, uh, there was an effective control over territory, but it wasn't 
at all clear that this that this government will that this state will survive for a decade, let alone uh, seven decades and counting. So investors would not like investors with uh, that are interested in return uh, and in, are interested in reducing their risk would run away from these bonds as fast as possible. Uh, you can only attach investors to it by with a, a significant appeal to patriotism and uh, essentially market it as as half a gift. Did I answer your question? Yeah, and of course, and presumably, I, I guess the the prices are not remotely in line with what one would expect given the underlying credit risk. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the in both cases, the kind of the interest was pegged to the American bonds. Uh, in the Israeli case, it was a, a percent above the going rate for American uh, government bonds at the time. Uh, you can think about, okay, how sure are you that you will get a return? Like, what is the price of this extra one one percent of interest? Uh, compared to the risk involved. Uh, in the Irish case, it was even more remarkable because it was not uh, already a recognized state. Uh, the bonds were conditional, meaning they were purchased as a gift, but they turned to be a bond only when and if the government is being recognized as a, as a government of Ireland. So it was even more like the the it was a conditional bond of sort the the story of the irish bond and the conditional aspect of it uh, i had never realized and i think actually even that mark and i have in our historical database of old bonds the two of us are a little bit obsessed with bonds and we have some of the documentation for the irish bond but until I read your book, I, I had, I hadn't realized that this was such an important part of this. Uh, but can I take you a little bit back in the story, or at least in in the background to your story, to the broader literature on these instances where gift and market are combined. And I think this is in chapter one or two of your book. And I was, I was a little bit surprised, I'm embarrassingly so, that there is such a rich literature in sociology of this world in which in lots of contexts, gift and market seem to be combined quite effectively. I, I think Viviana Zelizer's uh, work is uh, important here, and I have come across it in passing in some of our law school classes. But just to provide a little bit of background, at least in contract law, and um, Mark might correct me, but uh, as I think about it, it think about contract law, which I teach, we tell students that the spheres of gift and contract, and by contract, I think it's a stand-in for what you call market transactions, the spheres of contract and gift 
are to be strictly separated and in part because for market transactions slash contract transactions, parties are dependent on the state for legal enforcement. Whereas for gift transactions, because they are highly relational, reputational sanctions work well. And we think of them as not only separate in the real world, but that uh, normatively, in a sense, you should keep them separate. Uh, other, if you combine them, it doesn't work. And yet, uh, in the Israel bond context, but also the literature on social uh, from sociology, if I'm reading uh, your description correctly, and I might not be, and forgive me for that, it seems like the world is full of examples where gift and contract are, are combined quite effectively. And so uh, people like David Ben-Gurion and uh, Golda Meir and Henry Morgenthau, they, they seem to have read the sociology literature and to understood that you can effectively market this. But if you could give us a little bit of background on how sociologists think about this, uh, that would be great. Sure. I think like, it's useful to think about, uh, I think, in my head, I think about it as two different uh, periods uh, in, in the history of economic sociology or in the development of economic sociological thinking about it. For a fairly long time, uh, and let's say uh, I will draw the line until 2000 or so, economic sociologists oftentimes positioned themselves against uh, economists and constantly arguing that uh, the, the, the economics model of the world that is based on a homo economicus, the, the person that is self-interested and unencumbered in their pursuit of profit, basically economic sociologists kept on raising the flag and saying, that's a myth, that's a myth. It doesn't, like this person doesn't really exist. And uh, and I think about Viviana Zelizer's work as part of that uh, thrust, basically going to different fields of economic activity and, and exposing them to be less cold and self-interested and more uh, embedded in uh, networks of social relationship and commitments. And some of these, these commitments are uh, kind of economic commitments, but quite a, quite a lot of them are uh, embedded in social relationship and commitments, kind of social commitments that cannot be easily quantified. Um, so Viviana Zelizer, like as kind of maybe the best exemplar of that is showing how uh, financial instruments like life insurance are actually deeply moral and, and contentious because of their morality and that they cannot be easily priced out. Basically, her argument is that social relationships are stronger than economic relationships. A significant change happened kind of in uh, the early 2000s, mostly under the leadership of a sociologist, his name is uh, Michel Calon, a French sociologist that kind of turned the, the way of looking, of doing economic 
sociology a little bit on the side, and he said, well, it's true that a lot of market transactions are not uh, activated by some uh, thin homo economicus market interest alone, uh, and that's it. But in some instances, you can actually see markets that function very much like the way economists uh, imagine them to be, that they, like, the homo economicus is not completely imaginary if you look on specific markets. And his trick would, was to say, this is so extraordinary that sometimes markets are really just self-interested economic kind of a room of self-interested economic activity. How come those actors are not concerned about moral, social, social commitments and so on? And his idea was, okay, let's study how in some instances you create market transactions that are clean and kind of follow, kind of go exactly according to the recipe of the economists. So how did, and his claim is that the economists play the role in the shaping of these specific instances, like think about the stock market, where people really don't know who they buy and who they sell from. Uh, but he said, like, let's study how did they get to the point where the identity of the seller and the uh, political positioning of the seller and the buyer simply play no role whatsoever. So you can see that he's taking the same problem, but he's kind of turning it a little bit on its head. And he's saying, let's see how uh, different actors are shaping market instruments into what they are. And I think, like, I kind of took, obviously, I am very much indebted to Viviana Zelizer and her focus on those areas where the market doesn't work uh, in the way the economists describe it. But I also took a cue from Michel Calon's work in trying to understand the kind of how economic transactions are shaped. Uh, in, in my case, how economic transactions are shaped such that they hold together this element of a gift and an element of an investment all at the same time. I, I mean, I have so many questions to follow up on the context that you so beautifully set out for us. But let me... Um, again, go back in some ways to the origins, and you describe this beautifully, but maybe I can get you to give us even more, because undoubtedly, when you were writing your book, you left a lot of things on the cutting room floor. What is the story, if you had to give it in a nutshell, of how and why the founders of the Israel Bonds program decided to move away from the charity model where people were giving charity to Israel and instead come up with this quasi-market transaction, although it's, it's a binding legal contract since you borrow money and you're promising to pay back, but it has some some very weird uh, non-market aspects of it, like the bonds are 
not transferable. They are not listed on any exchange. Most of the bonds didn't really pay regular coupons. They, they were only payable at some later date. Uh, I think in, in more modern era, they, they, they're almost designed for certain, for weddings and bar mitzvahs. And who, whose ideas were all this? Now, in your book, you nod towards, and I, I didn't know this again, this is yet another piece of information that uh, I, I got first from your book. I didn't realize that the very uh, famous Treasury Secretary under FDR, Henry Morgenthau Jr., who I have always connected with World War II bonds and financing for the U.S., was one of the forerunners or originators of the Israel bonds program, along with uh, David Ben-Gurion. Uh, but sort of, do you have a sense of, like, how did they think about this? And did they look to the Irish program? Did, was the was the inspiration the war bonds program? Like, what? Like, how do you think about? I mean, we like to we like to study things that have been fabulously successful and figure out how to reproduce them. Do, hmm. do you have insights? Well, sure. In some ways, I mean, I know I, you have insights. So that 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 was not the proper question. <laughs> of course, you have insights. Uh, well, in some ways, I think the, the American war bond was a kind of proof of concept, but a, but a difficult proof of concept. The United States is, is a functioning government and like uh, it has a history and, and it has credit history uh, that allowed it to float those war bonds successfully. It, but it, but the, in some ways it was a proof of concept because it showed that you can combine a patriotic nationalistic appeal uh, to large-scale economic transactions. Uh, and Henry Morgentown in that, in that regard was important because uh, first, because he had his hand involved in that, but I have to say in, in some other ways, he wasn't all that important. By the time he was recruited to be the president of the organization that, of the Israel Bond Organization, he was kind of semi-retired he was never involved in American Jewish politics, so he was kind of a little bit of outsider to that world. Uh, and as far as I know, he was not even involved in the nitty gritty shaping of the terms of the bond, kind of the design of the financial instrument. He was more of a kind of figurehead, symbolic, uh, respectable guy uh, that can give credibility, super important, but. But he was not the he was not in the sausage factory when when they created this instrument. And to the best of my knowledge, they did not really like the the Irish experience was not particularly instrumental. Simply because the Irish case was largely a failed case. Uh, so by you know the Irish bond happened in the late teens and twenties. In, in early 20s. Uh, by the time we are talking about uh, kind of the late 40s, it's already a remote history. So I doubt if they even knew about it. But when it comes to you were asking me about how they came about thinking about it, I think like a lot of organizational innovations, uh, the Israel bond campaign is a product of a crisis. 
a crisis that forces people to recalculate where they, how they're going to accomplish their goals. Uh, the, the crisis in this case was a crisis of gift giving. You know, during the war, during World War II, American Jews gave actually incredible amount of uh, money uh, to world Jewry uh, writ large, including Israel, but not only. Uh, and this is, it's a chapter in history that for me, it's mind boggling. The amount of money that they raised as a gift uh, was uh, really inspiring. Uh, but, and, and you know, in 1945, they hit one record. And in 1948, when Israel is established and there is war and all of that, there is another record-breaking philanthropic campaign. Uh, but there's a lot of hands in this, in the mix of organizations and the money goes to different direction to support American Jewish institutions, to support organizations that help refugees in Europe and elsewhere in the Middle East. Only a fraction of it really goes to Israel. And after 48, at the very moment where Israel needs more money than ever, because suddenly they have their own uh, currency uh, and their own uh, debts to service and all of that. Uh, at the very that moment, American Jews are kind of the the war is supposedly over, but the economic survivor, like the war to survive economically, is is nowhere near over. Uh, and at that point, American Jewish donations. The trickle, like the gusher, slows down a little bit. And American Jewish organization says, listen, for a whole decade, we gave you all we could. Now we have to uh, kind of return some of those funds for our own institutions such that the Jewish community will survive another generation. So it's on the one hand, it's an economic crisis. The Israel simply doesn't get enough money. Uh, but it's also a moral uh, crisis because the leadership in Israel looks at it and it says, well, in all those fundraising campaigns, Israel plays a hugely central role. The average American Jew gives money for Israel, not for anybody else. Why do we get only 30 or 40 percent of, of, uh, for a dollar? What's going on there? And uh, for American Jews, like, their needs are legitimate. Like from Israeli perspective, the needs are like American Jewish organizations are simply stealing their money and uh, kind of trying to figure out. You know, now, in the first stages, like this crisis manifests itself with uh, Ben Gurion and Golda Meir and other uh, Israeli leaders that are going and kind of point fingers at the American Jewish organizations, American Jewish leaders, and tell them, you're not giving us enough, uh, shame on you. But they can do nothing other than shaming because they depend on that money so deeply. And then the idea of creating those bonds is a way of kind of making them less dependent on these philanthropic funds and, and, and allowing Israeli leaders to a direct access to American Jews that they believe are giving the money just for Israel. So they say, oh, we will create a separate instrument that will allow us to bypass those Jewish American organizations that collect the money. So the, this story is so fascinating and so 
nuanced. I think um, I imagine that you are asked all the time questions that ask you to draw lessons. In fact, I think this was sort of the the tail end of Me Too's question uh, to draw lessons from this experience for other contexts where what you might think of as sort of affinity bonds might possibly play a role. And I know Me Too and I have talked about Ukraine and talked about um, uh, green or environmental, social, and governance-related uh, financing. But I'm starting to wonder whether we know enough to draw those lessons. And, and I guess I to kind of draw a through line here to these, these modern cases where there might be a case to be made for affinity bonds. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about the Irish experience and about the reasons why, at least as I understand it, the the program there was so short-lived. Sure. In some ways, um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the Irish case and then I'll try to address the, the lessons learned. Uh, the Irish case, in terms of the crisis that uh, led to the creation of the bond was really similar to the Israeli case. The existing philanthropic organization keep a lot of the money in, in the United States. And there is a question of like how much money is being raised, how much money is being sent to Ireland, who, who calls the shot about how much money will be sent to Ireland and how it will be spent in Ireland. And the solution is to create this kind of a funky, semi-philanthropic, semi-investment instrument. The difference is uh, in the approach of how they handled it. In both cases, these projects was, were highly contentious. It was a, an attempt to make an end run on uh, Irish-American organizations or Jewish-American organizations and establish a direct link to the, to the donors now turned into investors. So there is conflict involved, and the question is how you handle it. Uh, in the Irish case, they were the organizer aimed for clarity. They wanted to create a clear division of labor. They wanted to tell Irish American leaders, listen, you are in a subservient role. We in the homeland are calling the shots. We are making decisions. We, de we will decide when to declare independence and how. Uh, and you are important, but you are important as fundraisers, as this kind of uh, people that take cue from us and raise the fund and send it uh, to Ireland. Do you support Ireland? If yes, go ahead and, and accept this subservient role. Uh, so it was about clarity, about creating a clear hierarchy between homeland and diaspora. The, many of the Irish American leaders were actually veterans of the Irish struggle in Ireland. Some of them had to escape Ireland because they were wanted. And they were not at all inclined to take that, you know, supportive role that they created for them. In the, in the Jewish case, there was similar kind of clash in self-perception. American Jewish leaders did see themselves as the leader of the uh, world Jewry. And Israeli leaders uh, sought that position for themselves. 
but the organizers of the bond campaign in the Israeli case did everything possible in order to leave the question of who is the real leader of the Jewish world unanswered, such that each side can tell themselves a story about how they are, they are the true leaders of the Jewish world without asking too many questions of who really is the leader at a given moment. It was not easy, but maintaining this kind of ambiguity regarding the role of American Jews in uh, the creation and, and kind of flourishing in Israel is really central to that, so that American Jews can tell themselves that they, that they made that country, while Israel says, of course, you did it. You were like, uh, you weren't even there. Now, going to your questions about lesson learned, you mentioned two, ca two cases, kind of uh, green investments and cases of uh, affinity bonds or, or other diaspora bonds, the Greek, the Ukraine. And I think the, the cases here are, are really, in some ways, different. In the case well, of uh, can I can I interrupt for just a uh, just a second to as a way of prefacing this because I think you might be about to highlight a, a difference that is sort of fundamental to a follow up question I was going to ask you which is just whether some process so in both of the examples you study there is a a real sort of nationalist fight to fight to create a nation that is the at the heart of the program and of course the that fight itself may not be sufficient the for a program like this to be successful but is is it necessary do you think for affinity investment of this sort to of tap into this desire to assist in the creation of a of a nation or i guess i mean the, the, just to follow up on mark's question or clarify it please uh, no no i i wanted to follow up because the, this the theme of nationalism does seem potentially very important so there is some writing in the diaspora bonds literature about what are called the resurgent India bonds that were, these weren't really bonds, but they were sort of deposit, depository, it was a depository scheme to escape US securities regulation. But it was all about the context of is, uh, India exploding a nuclear weapon and then international sanctions and the sort of nationalist government in India trying to tap into pro-Hindu, uh, anti-Muslim sentiment in terms of getting financing so heavily nationalist. And then uh, more recently, with the attempt of the Ukrainians to Ukrainian government, with the help of the US to try to tap into the sentiments of uh, members of the Ukrainian diaspora who were fighting for the survival of their nation. I mean, it, it does, and again, and this also goes back to the war bonds issued in both the UK and the US on the to finance World War One and World War II, which is again national survival. But some of these failed spectacularly. Some succeeded and none succeeded for as long of a period 
as Israel. But, you know, sorry, I just wanted to add to uh, what Mark had said in terms of the nationalist context and whether that's that's crucial or not. Well, I think about it as in some ways it is like the, the, the some sort of moral uh, moral moral burning, like a, a, a desire to help something that is very endangered, like a nation state that is struggling for survival, is important for these projects. But I would like. I'm inclined to think about these bonds not simply as uh, instruments that are tapping into existing sentiments. I think about them also as as part and parcel of the management of, of the creation of these sentiments. Meaning, let's think about the Irish case. The failure of the Irish case was not at all because of lack of fervor. Like if anything, like I think the Irish American commitment to Ireland was extraordinarily high uh, in the period that we are talking about. Uh, but the fact that they failed to manage the bond, the fact that the, this kind of transaction uh, quickly thereafter deteriorated into accusations of you cheated me or you cheated me, you owe me, no, it was a gift, led to a real souring of the relationship and not so much at the level of individual uh, purchaser, but certainly at the level of the large organizations and the middlemen in different cities that were uh, kind of selling the bonds to individual subscribers and then had to answer questions about where is my money, where did it go, what do you do with my money, did you steal the money. Uh, so effectively, I think the failure to hold it together really uh, led to some sort of organizational collapse. Sentiments toward Ireland survived, but today they're expressed in symbolic gestures like wearing green in St. Patrick's Day. And there's no organizational middleman that turns them into an effective uh, political economic tool. And in the Israeli case, to some extent, the fervor, the nationalist fervor was was there. You can see it in the fact that in the War of Independence of 1948, American Jews gave extraordinary amount of money as a gift to Israel. But quickly thereafter, they're kind of turning their attention to other things, to, to their own communities. And, and the philanthropic giving goes down quite quickly. And yet, there is I guess there is enough of it to make those bonds, to start this bond project. But importantly, once you have the bond project, you can use the, the transaction itself to stoke uh, nationalist sentiments almost from scratch. You can, you know, you can inv invite big bond purchasers for a tour of the country where they will meet the high-ranking politicians that will tell them, thank you so much, you did that. You know, they will take them to all kinds of infrastructure projects in Israel and will tell them, we couldn't have done it without you, you did that. Uh, and of course, these people go back to their communities and say, yes, I, I have a share in the creation of this uh, marvelous state in the Middle East. Uh, it's mine, I did it. 
so it's creating the nationalist sentiments, not only riding on, on something that already exists. And when it comes to, um, like I'm, I keep trying to get to, to contemporary examples and what makes them work and what not. And I guess I leave it at the, to the end because I'm not sure that I have uh, super satisfying answers to that. I think one thing that we can learn from both the Irish and the Jewish cases is how complex this type of affinity or diaspora bond projects are. How complex they are organizationally, just making sure that you are able to raise funds from not simply one investor or two big investors that, that then, you know, sell it to a pension fund or something like that. But you have to actually go to individuals that typically don't have a lot of money uh, to give and go to each one of them and register the bond and make sure that it flows properly. And, and all that while keeping the overhead cost of the bond manageable. You know, uh, we talked about how successful the Israel bonds are in terms of uh, existing for so long, but in the last three, four decades, you know, it is fair to ask, does Israel really need them, economically speaking? Meaning Israel today can, and it does, raise most of its uh, financial uh, needs from not through the Israel bond. You know, they can just go to um, Wall Street and, and get the money that they need for a far lower overhead cost than, than the amount of money that the Israel bonds takes. It is, uh, why do they continue to sell those bonds? Here you have a real question. Part of it is just, I believe the, iron law of oligarchy. Once you have an organization, it seeks to continue to exist no matter what, no matter if it's even needed. There are people, they work in that, they make their living, they, their, their existing commitments, social commitments that make it work. And another element is that it is an instrument that keeps American Jews involved in Israel. So here, the, like what started as an economic crisis that the bonds helped alleviate, now it's almost the opposite way around. It's a fairly costly financial instrument that Israel keeps in place, partly because there's no one there to kill it. We, we can't end on a, a down note, uh, which is the, <laughs> the, the, the matter of, you know, why does this program still exist, given that Israel is a AAA issuer that can raise as much money as it wants on the international markets. And I have to say, I was looking in preparation for our conversation, I was looking at the yields on Israel bonds versus uh, Israeli commercial bonds, meaning the bonds that they issued to the wider market that are listed on the exchanges and uh, in the indexes. And is Israel actually often pays more. The, the rates it pays on the diaspora bonds are frequently slightly higher, not a lot, but slightly higher. So, I mean, this is not only an expensive program, 
because it's expensive to run. These are, you know, bonds that are often issued in denominations of $25 to $50, which, which is very inconvenient, but they're even paying more. So you do wonder what, why the, why the hell is, does the program still exist? And uh, I love the iron law of oligarchy, but on a, on a more positive note, Mark and I have been working along with our colleague, Quinn Curtis, on the question of the design of ESG bonds and ESG financing instruments that the world in some ways, we think, desperately needs because of the climate crisis that is upon us. And Wall Street has found it very difficult to design instruments that combine concern about the environment with financial returns. Now, I don't know if you've thought about it. I'm guessing these are the kinds of questions that your students probably ask you. Uh, if you, if you, if the World Bank or the IMF called you, as probably they do, and said, look, you're the world's leading expert on how to combine charitable, gifty type inclinations with market transactions in financial instruments. Tell us what to do. It, what we have so far has been a woeful failure, but the world is in desperate need of your magic. <laughs> Thank you for the compliments. Unfortunately, the World Bank haven't called me, and I suspect that they did not call me because, because I'm a bit of a downer uh, when it comes to this. Yeah, yeah, maybe you shouldn't mention this iron law of oligarchy. That, that's, you're definitely right. That's not uplifting. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to keep a positive note. I think the, the main thing that I, I'll say is about the importance of trying to keep things ambiguous, meaning like it's not easy to maintain a bond, like a financial instrument that that is not exactly a gift, not exactly an, an investment uh, afloat for a long period of time, because there's a lot of things that that will make even like Think about it when you invest in a, you know, people that invested in Solyndra, including the United States government, invested in Solyndra as kind of as a moral investment, as something that is uh, motivated by concern about climate change and uh, wanting to get a return. Uh, at some point, it became completely clear that it was uh, not just a gift, but a forced gift, right? The, that the investment will never come back. Uh, it is just as good as a gift in terms of not coming back with an interest, but worse than a gift because we didn't choose to do it like that. So it's a potentially explosive combination. And, and I believe that other kind of moral investment faced a similar difficulty. The, uh, the problem there is kind of is two dimensional. It's one, how to keep it kind of, if we think about the spectrum between a gift and, and an investment, how to keep it somewhere in the middle. 
And the second axis is, is the temporal axis of how to make sure that if something happens in the future that make it look like, like a forced gift or make it look like a complete investment, how can we make sure that it will not become one and then lose the, this kind of multivocality that it had before? It's a challenge, but it's a challenge that people that deal with credit always deal with. Right, they always uh, deal with a, a question of uh, temporality. Of uh, this investment is one thing today. What will happen if something, if uh, some sort of foreseeable event will happen and change the value of that gift or change the value of that investment? And how can we uh, design to counter that these eventualities? So in some ways, I'm I'm thinking about it like the the real experts that need to uh, that are the maybe the best people to talk about with are people that deal with credit all the time and i think if i compare if i kind of zoom out from the, the jewish and irish case and think about another important difference that happened between them is the amount of a uh, kind of deliberate thinking and design of the financial instrument that went into those two objects. In the Irish case, the people that were controlling the, the whole floating of the bonds were simply not professional. They were, in some cases, professional uh, social movement leaders, and in some cases, professional politicians, but they had no financial expertise whatsoever. In the Jewish case, the, the most important inputs that uh, the designers they got when they were designer, they, designing the instrument came from, from bankers, uh, essentially bankers that told them, we are not willing to come anywhere near that uh, funky junk bond that you are intending on floating but we can meet you privately and give you a lot of good tips about uh, what will work and what will not work and how you should go about doing it. And this is kind of just a professional expertise that they were able to lend uh, that was essentially about thinking about uh, counter future possibilities and figuring out how to handle them. Lawyers kind of, I think about it, it's basically the, the, the work of lawyers and, and bankers. If anything, I, if I can tell the World Bank anything is like, use more of those. These are really smart people uh, that can help design successful instruments. Well, if nothing else, I know that our students would be excited to hear that, <laughs> even if we all can point to some examples where um, both lawyers and bankers fall short of those aspirations. But Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I don't remember if we said the name of the book, but uh, if we hadn't, the book is Sinews of the Nation. And um, both me too and I were really excited to talk to you about it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a real pleasure.